Good evening. Hello, everybody. Are you doing well? Are you excited about what God is going to do this week? Fantastic. Well, before you sit down, I know you're ready to sit down, but before you do, would you just lift your hands to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as we commit this whole week from start to finish to the Lord. I don't know about you, but every time I come into His presence, I come with expectation that my God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than I can ask or imagine. I don't know what needs you have in your life, in your family, in your marriage. I don't know what needs you have in your body, in your finances, in your mental state. But I do know one thing. My God is able to meet every one of my needs according to His riches in glory. And right now, would you just begin to begin to look to the Lord for the miracle that you need in your life? Would you begin to look to the Lord, whether it's healing, whether it's, it's deliverance, whether it's provision? Let's come with faith and expectancy for He is a good Father. He is a good Shepherd and Father tonight. At the very start of this Revival Week, we want to commit, Lord God, this time together, seeking Your face and worshipping You. We want to commit, Lord, God, this encounter time with You, I pray that You would do something powerful and fresh and new in every single life. Lord, I pray not one, not one would go home the same way we came, but You would have Your way. We pray, let Your Kingdom come and let Your will be done. Come on, if you agree, give me a rousing Amen. And give the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords a clap of praise for He's worthy of all honour and glory tonight in Jesus' Name. And everyone said, all right, high five one person and grab a seat. It is so wonderful to be here tonight. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, I'm so grateful to all the amazing pastors who put this together. Uh, It is an honour and a privilege for me to be here. Uh, I bring you greetings from Perth, Western Australia. Uh, The wise men came from the east and they went to the west and they found Jesus. It's the place of revival. Uh, It's also a beautiful city. But mind you, today we went around Lake Burley Griffin. And we saw some of the most beautiful parts of your city, and it truly is stunning. So I think we've got a rival there uh, compared to Perth's beauty. Me and Mitch, we went around, and it was so stunning. Uh, I bring you greetings also from my beautiful wife. Her name is Sharon. I've got a photo of this beautiful lady. And I know what you're thinking. All the single guys there and all the married guys looking at her and looking at me, looking back at her, and thought, how does he get... a girl like that. Well, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things uh, will be added unto you. Come on, all the single people, write this down. Uh, Set your heart on Jesus and He is able to give you the desires of your heart. Sharon is uh, part Maori. Any Maoris here? Uh, No, part Kiwi. Any Kiwis here? No? Okay. Well, she's Australian now. Uh, Any 
Australians here. Great, great. Uh, and we have together three good-looking young men, three young boys. Well, they're not really young anymore. Uh, Levi, my eldest in the middle, and then there's Noah on the left there, and there's Micah. And so they are a beautiful blend of Sharon's Kiwi Maori Australian married to an Indian Malaysian Australian, and together we are the United Nations. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, there you go. That's my handsome boy. So they give you, bring you their greetings. And, uh, and today it's a privilege for me to share around God's Word. Are you ready for God's Word? Fantastic. Well, I came to Australia when I was seven and a half years old. And I remember when we first went to a local church, the pastor decided to come and visit our home. Now, in Malaysia, the pastor is like the Pope. It's like the Queen visiting your house. I don't know if that's like your culture here, but in Indian cultures, when the pastor comes over, everything has to be perfect. I remember my mom and dad said, come on, everything has to be clean. We have to open and cupboards clean above, you know, uh, uh, high windows and as though the pastor would go and say, oh, not good, not good, you know, but it literally he went and we cleaned everything and then the pastor came to our house and we were so excited, you know, we, we even ushered him into the Holy of Holies. We have a holy of holies in Asian houses. It's called the formal lounge. I don't know if you, if you guys have a holy of holies. It's where they had the couch that no one was allowed to sit on, right? Uh, the young generation, you don't get it. Don't worry. Thank God it's over. Uh, it's all under the blood of Jesus. We're now living in a new generation. But back in the old days, in the 80s and 90s, when dinosaurs used to roam the earth, uh, you'd have a room set aside that no one was allowed to actually walk in. Into. It got cleaned every week. It got vacuumed every week. It had a rug that no one was allowed to step on. It had a couch that in Indian places you still had the plastic on. Uh, you know, it had glassware in a nice cupboard that no one had ever drunk from. And so when the pastor comes to your house, he gets ushered into the Holy of Holies. And I remember that day, uh, my mum quickly came, come in, pastor, come in, please, come in, have a coffee. And she ran ran off to the kitchen to make a coffee and the pastor committed one of the worst sins you could commit in an Indian household. He walked in with his shoes and he walked right up to the, the couch and he, he sat with his leg crossed and part of the bottom of his shoe touched the couch and and I'm watching this going, uh-oh, this is going to be, this is not good. Mum's going to walk through that door with the coffee. And I remember mum walked in with a smile on her face. And on the outside, she was saying, welcome, it is so good to see you. On the inside, she's going, Chee, dirty, what are you doing? Trapsing your dirty caca feet all over my couch. That's what she was thinking. And I remember the moment, you know. And in that instant, the pastor went from being this revered man to, you know, somebody that she was offended by. She was so offended that he would walk into the lounge room that had carpet on the floor with his dirty shoes. And you're going, what's the, the moral to the story? Well, the moral to the story is that first impressions really matter. 
Even though this pastor ended up being our pastor for more than 20 years after that, and we got to know him and got to love him and uh, got to serve in that church and be planted in the house. The first impression was that he was rude and didn't understand our culture. And we, because of our first impression of him, pulled away from him. It actually took a lot of time for us to actually see him as he really was. First impressions really do matter. They shape the way you see a person. They shape the way you relate to a person. And as I was thinking about this whole story, I wondered about some of our first impressions of what God is really like. If we were to take a moment and think, question ourselves, what is your first impression of God? And is it an accurate picture of who he really is? You see, in most cases, our first impression of what God is like comes from a person that represents him in our lives. So if you come from a religious home, your first impression of God is what your parents say about him or how your parents represent him. If you go to a Christian school, then your first impression of God is what the teacher says or what the principal says. Or if you go to church, your first impression of what God is like can come from a pastor or a preacher. That's your first impression of God. You see what these humans are like and you take that character and that nature. You see what they say about God and that is your first impression of God. So here tonight, I want to challenge you about what is your first impression of God and whether it's an accurate picture of who he really is. Is he really like that? See, the enemy likes to plant a distorted image of what God is like because he understands that if he can give you a distorted image of what God is like, it will actually affect your prayer life. It'll affect your worship. It'll affect your service. Growing up in Malaysia, uh, in the Catholic Church, um, we used to have some blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesuses around. We would have the picture of Jesus, but he was this blonde hair, blue-eyed, with a halo. And, and, and how many know that is a really distorted image of Jesus? And so whenever we prayed, we were praying to this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, surfy Jesus in Malaysia, who did not understand, obviously, our culture, our people. That's how we saw him. The wrong image, the wrong picture, the wrong first impression of God in your heart will change the way you pray, will change the way you worship. You see, this whole week we're talking about we're here to worship. But who are you here to worship? Who are you here to worship? What is he really like? Is he the real God that you are worshipping? Or is he a wrong impression or a wrong picture that has been put into your heart many, many years ago that you've held on to? My prayer tonight is that the Holy Spirit, through his revelation and his kindness, will begin to pull down every illusion, every wrong impression of who God is. So when you worship him, you'll be able to worship him as he really is. Isn't that true? See, the enemy loves to distort the image of God. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 2 to 5. There's a conversation between Satan and Eve. And the woman said to um, the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the 
the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not even touch it or you will die, right? And then Satan comes in and says, you will certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So she has this image and this picture of God. She has this word from God. And when she had that image of God, she was close to him. She spent time in his presence. And then the enemy comes in and he paints a distorted, a different image of what, is, what God is really like. He starts to stir in her heart that God is actually a liar. It's not exactly true. He's not telling you the truth. He's actually trying to hold back something from you. Why? Because he doesn't want your best. God doesn't actually love you as much as you think he loves you. And all of a sudden, this woman's image of God changes. But more than that, her relationship, the way she related to God changed. She went from walking intimately with the heavenly father to hiding from the heavenly father and rebelling from his words, not trusting his word, even though she was at the beginning. The enemy loves to change and distort our image of who God is like, because if he can do that, if you can believe a lie about who God is, it will impact every area of your life. Lately, I've been studying first encounters in the Bible, looking through some of the greats and going, how did they first encounter God? You know, and uh, I've been studying the life of Jacob. And in Genesis 28, verse 11 to 15, we have his first encounter with God. It says this, when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. And he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. See, Jacob grew up in a believing home. Jacob knew about God. Jacob had his parents talk about God. His picture of God came from what his parents said. But he never had an encounter with God till this moment. And at this point, Jacob's at the lowest stage of his life. Why? Because he had wandered away from God. His heart had hardened and he decided to deceive his own blind, sick father by stealing from his dad and turning his brother against him, stealing his brother's birthright. And now his brother wants to kill him. His dad's so disappointed. His mum tells him to leave the house. And most of all, he knows about God and he knows he must have hurt God by sinning against his family. And now here is Jacob all alone in the desert after doing some shocking things. And he would have been petrified to meet with God. How many know when you've done something wrong? I know when I used to do something wrong at home and I'm coming home. And I remember we used to have um, close friends and at church, my parents would tell me, you are not going to go home to your friend's house today. Don't ask in front of people because I'm not going to tell you no in front of people, but I'm telling you now, don't ask to go over to their house for lunch. Don't ask to go over. I'm warning you, don't do it. And then, of course, you know, come into church and you'd have fun. And then my friend would say, you should ask your parents if you can come over to my house, right? And then I would and I could see my mum. Smiling, but inside, I knew. 
right? I was disobeying. And when I'd come back home from my friend's house, I'd be, Mom, I love you. And you just know, right? Jacob would have been in one of those moments. He would be so scared. He knew what he did. He did so many bad things to a holy God and to his beautiful family. The last thing on his mind was to meet with God. The last thing he wanted to do is stand before a holy God. And he expected this God, if he did meet up with him, to punish him, to tell him off, to show him what he needed to do to make up for his sins. But then we have this encounter, the first encounter. He's expecting God to be angry. He's expecting God to punish him. He's expecting God to cut him off. He's expecting God to give him a lecture. And now he has this encounter with the living God. Everything inside of him would have been petrified. Everything inside of him would have been shaking. God's going to punish me. God's going to strike me dead. God is so angry with me. But we read in Genesis 28, 11 to 15. There above the ladder stood the Lord. And he said... I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. This is the first encounter. This is the first encounter with the living God. He was waiting for it. I remember coming home Sunday evening. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. Come here. I was expecting. Jacob was expecting. Father God, you dirty, shameful, deceitful, what sort of guy would steal from his dying blind father? What is wrong with you? You have humiliated our family. You have shamed us. You know what you need to do in order for you to make things right? I want to see you repent. I want to see you do this. Nothing. God starts to bless him. God starts to tell him his future. God says, I know who you are. I'm your God. I know your father. I know your grandfather. I know you. I know what you've done. And I'm here to tell you, son, that I've got a plan for your life. I've got a future for your life. My presence is going to come with you. My provision is going to come upon you. My protection is going to be all around you. And in that moment, the picture that Jacob had of God Completely changed. Completely changed. He would have been so blown away. He's almost waiting for God to take out the stick. You need to do A, B, C, D before I can even bless you and forgive you. Nothing. I know you. I've got a plan for you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you and I'm going to be faithful to you even though you haven't been faithful to me. I want you to know that for so many of us, we've got a wrong picture of who God is. 
We've got a wrong theology that needs to be changed. We need the Holy Spirit to actually pull down some veils because we talk about worship and our worship is all built around our wrong paradigms. We're trying to earn God's favor. We're trying to earn God's forgiveness. We're trying to earn God's blessing. We're trying not to get God angry. We're trying to serve so we have His acceptance. We're trying to be kind so that He can look down and and not punish us. We have this mentality that God's still angry for what I did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And our worship is hindered by all the wrong pictures of who God is. Today, God says, I'm going to rip that up. I want you to see me as I am. This is who I am. I know you. I know your past. And I've got a plan for your future. My presence is going to go with you. My provision's coming upon your life. My protection is for you. Totally blew away Jacob. You know, religion focuses on all our sin our behavior, what we have to do, our punishment, the consequences. But faith focuses on Christ and what Christ's finished work on the cross has achieved for us. You know, many, many years ago, uh, we had this production uh, at Easter time, uh, maybe you guys had it here as well, where where we would uh, um, have life stories of different people and depending on their choice, what would happen is they would go to heaven or if they rejected Christ right on the stage, demons would come out from underneath the ground and, and drag them apart and and, and 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 drag them away from their family it was it was really really traumatic uh, I did it three times I was the construction worker that gave his heart to Jesus right at the end uh, which was fantastic because at that point the building collapsed in the play and I would have gone straight to hell uh, but I gave my heart to Jesus and then Jesus comes out and he gives me a big hug but then other people get dragged off stage kicking and screaming crying and it was just absolutely terrifying, right? People gave their heart to God. Every, every, single, every single play, altar calls were full, right? It, it worked. It worked. People started coming to church. I'm not going to get dragged away by some demon. I love my wife. I don't want to be separated from eternity from my wife. Okay, that's the kind of God. Now, don't get me wrong. Heaven and hell is real. We need to receive Jesus. But I'm here to tell you that fear does not foster the healthy kind of relationship that God is after with you. Only love does. See, those people who would give their heart to Jesus and those plays were doing it not because they knew his kindness or knew him to be the loving father or that his kindness led them to repentance. No, they just wanted to avoid hell. And so I'll do anything to avoid hell. Fine. But you know what? If that's all you see God as, your way out of hell, you won't want to worship him. You won't want to serve him. You won't want to live a pure life. You'll just do what it takes to please the one that's keeping you from hell. But that was actually not the kind of relationship that God was after with you and I. 
How do we know this? Because Jesus talks to um, all these religious believe, uh, religious people in Luke chapter 15, verse 20. And he, he shares this story about the prodigal son. You know, this son who did so many things wrong. He stole. He cheated. He was disrespectful of his father. He slept around with prostitutes. He did drugs. He wasted his father's money. He deserved punishment. He deserved consequence. But the moment he chose to return to God, Luke 15. 1520 says this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And all the religious people are going, who is this father? Who does that? And Jesus said, you won't because you are religious, but there is a heavenly father. That is doing that to every single one of you. Before you even say a word, He loves you. Before you even repent, He can see your heart. Before you even do everything correct and and try to earn His acceptance and His love, He already loves you. Change your perspective of Father. Change your perspective of the one you worship. Don't come to Him because you're trying to avoid hell. Come to Him because He loves you. He died for you. He knows your faults. He knows your past. And yet He gives you a future. He has a plan for your life, a purpose for your life. His presence goes with you. His protection comes upon you. And His kindness is what leads us to repentance. We serve a good God. We serve a loving Father. And until you get this revelation, your worship is affected. Well, I better worship Him. Who knows? He might send a couple of demons out to drag me off. I better worship Him. Because my past is still always before him. I don't really want to serve, but I'll start serving because, you know, I'm trying to impress the big guy. That's not the kind of relationship he's after. He wants to get our theology correct. Just the musicians, please come up to help me. We serve a God that wants us to get a revelation of his love. You know, um, Genesis 28, verse 20 to 22, is Jacob's response to this God that he encounters for the first time. Before God tells him what to do, before God asks him to do anything, the love and the kindness of God washes over this deceiver, this guy who cheats, this guy who steals, this guy who lies. God never told him to stop lying. God never told him to stop cheating. God never told him to stop being greedy and tripping other people up. God just says, I love you, son. I've got a plan for your life. I long to be with you, my presence to go with you, to protect you. And in Genesis 28, 20, when Jacob hears these words and the presence of God melts his hard heart, it says this, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and if God will watch over me on this journey that I'm taking and if God will provide for me like he promises he will and if I will return home safely because of the Lord's protection to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, 
I will give you a tenth. This is powerful stuff. Jacob, the one that steals, Jacob, the one that's so greedy, has an encounter with the true God, the true love in the presence of God. Stuff starts changing in his heart. God doesn't say, I want you to give a tenth. He goes, no, I'm going to give you a tenth. I'm going to build your house on this, this pillar here. I'm going to make sure that other people that walk past this desert, other people like me who are so far away from you, other people like me who've done such shameful things like I have, will walk past this place and I build a house of God here so that people can encounter this God that I have encountered. They can encounter this kindness and this love that changes. They can encounter this presence that breaks off yokes. They can encounter this this forgiveness that really transforms life. They can encounter this provision and this protection. I will give my life for this. Not once did God say, you need to start serving. You need to start tithing. You need to start changing. Stop stealing. Start giving. No. It's a byproduct of an encounter with the real God. It's the encounter. You know, we talk about the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. But sometimes we can say it, we can know it, we can read it, we can proclaim it. But we haven't changed the picture of who he really is. It was 19 years ago, for the first time, I got a true revelation of the love of Jesus. I was in a delivery room with my wife screaming in pain. I was crying right next to her. And the nurse took this little boy covered in all sorts of stuff and put him in my hands. This boy had his eyes closed. He didn't say one word. He didn't say, Dad, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to be good. Didn't say any of that. This goo-covered child placed in my hands. And before he did one thing for me, before he said one thing, before he even opened his eyes, everything in me felt such love that I knew I would give my life for him. That's how Father sees you. Before you do one thing, before you say one thing, before you can impress Him, He's already madly and deeply in love with you. And you go, but I've got so many flaws. I've made so many mistakes. I've got so many addictions. I've got so many things wrong with me. Well, I, as a father, would say to you, I rather a broken, flawed son than no son at all. And God says the same to you. He knows what you've done. He knows what you struggle with. But His presence comes to you today. And He says, I love you. I want to provide for you. My presence goes with you. Open up to the real God. Would you stand in this place? I really feel the presence of God here. As we talk about worship this conference, it begins 
not as something you have to do to earn anything. Worship is just a response when you get the revelation that you are so good to me, that you are so kind to me, that you love me so very much. We're going to sing this beautiful song and I believe God, as you sing it, is going to break some chains of people's lives, some old religious thinking, some old religious thinking. Maybe some people told you that God is angry, that God's upset with you. God sees. He does, but not like a creepy judge. He sees because He's your Father. Would you lift your hands and sing this song?